morning. Take our Bibles and head to John chapter 4 as we continue our study in the fourth gospel. There are certainly, I say from time to time, uh, some Sundays where I feel it would be appropriate to close in prayer after the song service and go home. We've been instructed a lot (laughs) in the word by way of song as it should be. And uh, I'm so thankful to participate in worship with a group of folks who are certainly more interesting in honoring God than having their, uh, their personal desires met in the way we worship. So praise God for you and thank you for ministering to one another in songs and hymns and, and spiritual songs this morning. I'm going to go to prayer real quickly here, not only for uh, the Lord's blessing on the preaching of his word, but um, we want to pray for um, the Richard family at this time. Uh, Julie's mom uh, passed away. Um, last evening and we've been praying for her for a long time we do believe she came to know the lord jesus as her savior during this journey and uh, thank the lord for julie and the family's faithful witness to her so we want to pray for julie we also have uh, a young man who lost a mother-in-law and children who lost a grandma and so um, our hearts hurt for you as well and uh, many of you had the opportunity online to uh, worship together at the homegoing service of our sweet friend in, in Canada, Deb Talbert, yesterday. And uh, the Lord was honored in that service, and we rejoice that Debbie is made whole before her Savior this morning. And this is the first Lord's Day for her in his presence. She has seen him on whom she's believed, and uh, we're thrilled for her, but we want to lift up Bud and the children and grandchildren at this time and our good friends at Foundations Baptist Church there in Edmonton. All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we desire as Paul prayed in 2 Thessalonians 3 that the word of God would have free course and rapid advance among us this morning. We believe it's done that in the nine o'clock hour and that will be done in Sunday School Fellowships this evening, and we certainly ask that that would be our understanding and our reality in this service as well. Pray, Lord, as you do that, that you would continue to protect us from wicked and unreasonable men, as Paul prays there. We thank you for 75 years of faithful preaching and for your faithful guidance and honoring of your word as it's preached, and also for your faithful protection. We live in a world where even again last night in California, lives are senselessly and selfishly taken. And Lord, you've protected us from that here. And we, uh, we thank you for that protection. And Lord, we thank you for safely taking two of your children to your presence, both with Julie's mother Deb Talbert. Lord, I pray for Ben and the kids and the whole family that your peace would be their portion today, that you would minister to them the very unique kind of comfort their heart needs at this time, and they would know your spirit's work in their hearts as he administers that comfort to them. We pray, Lord, that they walk through today and arise tomorrow, that they would continually know the the very active 
desire of your heart for them to know that comfort prepared for them for this hour in the days ahead as well. Pray the same for Bud and the children and grandchildren there and the flock there in Edmonton. Help us, Lord, by your grace to embrace the promises of your word that we know to be true in relationship to those who are your children who go on before us. And help us to rejoice, Lord, in their rejoicing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We do have a baptism coming up here the first Sunday in February, so if you've been born again and want to obey the Lord in baptism, join these folks that are being baptized. We encourage you to do that. It's never too late to do the right thing. And, uh, so send us your testimony by way of email, or you can write that and hand it to us, and we'll look forward to enjoying that time together. And uh, thank you for those of you who did pray uh, for the National Pastors Fellowship in Florida this last week. Um, probably the best one yet. I know I say that every year, but I say that in the sense that there's, there's more that have come together to network for gospel advancement in our country and throughout the world, and that just keeps getting gooder every year. So thank you for allowing us to invest in those folks from all over the world uh, for those three days, and thank you uh, folks who are here now who were there last week uh, serving you know who you are. It's a lot of you, and uh, the Lord is going to honor you for honoring him and, and ministering to those uh, servants across the world. And, um, so, on to uh, necessary things, but thank you for your investment. There's an old Sunday school song that I find myself whistling all the time, and it's a, it's a blessed song, and Maybe you can join me this morning uh, in just a brief singing of its first verse. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his way, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still. And with all who will trust and obey, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Well, I believe for good reason this favorite hymn of ours resonated throughout time is good for us to sing this morning. If there's anyone who modeled what it meant to trust and obey, and that perfectly, it was Jesus. His obedience was perfect. We always need to remember it was with divine purpose. Can we remember that? That's kind of our proposition this morning. Jesus' obedience was perfect and always with divine purpose and so ours should be as well. You remember Philippians chapter 2, don't you? Jesus was obedient, and he was obedient even unto the death of the cross. His obedience was unto purpose. 
The beginning of his public obedience was always towards the end of his duty on the cross of Calvary. And I would submit to you that for us, that's a great model to follow. I would say that's the model to follow. From the beginning of our conversion to the point of our heavenly transformation, can I invite all of us to be obedient with the same gospel purpose that Jesus was obedient unto. Let's read our text in John chapter 4, verses 46 to 54 this morning. John chapter 4, verse 46, and so appreciate Pastor Hobie declaring a tremendous message to you last week as we continue on in our study. John records, therefore, he came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made water to wine and there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come and to heal his son. For he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him and started off. And as he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was the hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So we're going to walk through the text this morning and we'll conclude with a few appropriate applications, hopefully for all of us. Jesus has just finished a short trip of purpose into a forbidden area for Jews. He had spiritual success. Success there that he hadn't experienced even when he stepped out into public ministry and changed the water to wine. We studied back in John chapter 2. This success was merely achieved by the power of his spoken word and without a sign or a miracle. We know the whole theme of the Gospel of John from John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus did these signs that people would believe. And then John does give us at least seven signs throughout his Gospel. And in each case, there were at least some who believed. But very little gospel response from the Hellenistic Jews, including Jesus' own family and friends from his own hometown. Upon his first sign in public ministry, he changed water to wine at the hometown wedding. There were a couple that became his disciples, but not many. John records Jesus' brief trip to Samaria where he finds his first measurable success, and there he does no miracle. 
It's by the power of his word alone that lives are changed, and quite a few, as you heard last week. Let's read John chapter 4, verses 39 to 42, real quickly, just by way of review. I think it's good for us to understand that Christ's obedience didn't just include the doing of signs, but faithfulness to the speaking of God's will, God's word. And from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the what? The world. Jews and Gentiles, everybody. After the two days he went forth from Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no longer honor in his own country. Sounds like John chapter 1. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. And therefore he then came to Cana of Galilee. We'll discuss this as we continue on this morning. But we have here a reminder in chapter 4, verses 39 to 42, a declaration of obedience and spiritual success and how Jesus must have been overwhelmed with the joy at the response of the Samaritans now saved just by a mere speaking of his word. He's there just two days with the religious forbidden company no sign and many were born again because they heard the logos the word of god speak the power of god's words to save was translated by the spirit of god to one radically immoral woman and god changed her people saw the changed life as a result of christ's spoken word and they were eager to listen to her the miracle of a changed life through the power of a spoken word had more influence than even Jesus' first and even his second sign that he performed in the text we read today. So as we come to verse 46, it's important for us to know that this is the beginning of what is called Christ's Galilean ministry. It's going to last for about 16 months just under a year and a half. So the sign, or the sight of his second sign, occurs at the same place where he stepped out into public ministry, and it's done among those who know him best, his friends and his family and his own local countrymen. But I do think it's significant that the Lord Jesus' second sign in a relatively short period of time is performed among those who knew him best. I think there's something to be learned we'll apply at the end of our sermon this morning of seven signs included by the Apostle John in his gospel why 
do those who know Jesus best get to enjoy the first two of seven? As he's ministering there, a man associated with the ruling Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, hears of Jesus' being in the region and he rushes to see him. This man, as we read in our text, is called a royal official. Within his title is the root of the word king. But Herod Antipas, the one he serves, is no king. He certainly is Tetrarch governing for the emperor about at least 25% of a territory, hence he's called a Tetrarch. Herod Antipas was Tetrarch for almost 40 years of this 25% of this region under the rule of the Roman emperor at that time. Herod Antipas was a wicked dude. He sawed to it to have an adulterous relationship and then marry his brother's wife. And he's the guy that's responsible for the beheading of John the Baptist. Nonetheless, this man who rushes some 15 miles from Capernaum to Cana of Galilee comes as a father and also at great risk to his own life when we understand who he works for. This nobleman comes because his son, and this nobleman uses the word for little child in the Greek language. So uh, we understand that this boy may have been under 10 years old and at death's door. He begs Jesus to quickly return to his home some 15 miles away so that he can heal his baby boy. Now Jesus says something that doesn't seem so tender in verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I'm sure you noticed that the word you is written twice in this verse, but I want you all to know that it's plural and not singular. While he's speaking to the face of this nobleman who's hurting because his son's at death's door, he speaks to him, but his message is for the greater audience of his friends, his family members, and those who saw him grow up in the region. Certainly, Jesus begins his Galilean ministry with gospel purpose. I mean, he's not in Jerusalem where some would be seeking to kill him before his hour would come. He's in his own hometown. The text says that they all received him and they celebrated his return once again. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem. It was pretty amazing. His popularity was growing with some, but there were some, especially the Judaizers, that sought to kill him. So he goes back to his hometown to begin his 16 month Galilean ministry and people are there are still okay with him this is the man that they saw grow up he does miracles they're amazing he speaks with authority from heaven and we like him because he's well liked here and simply he's just an amazing guy he's the hometown hero so certainly The good old boy Jesus is welcome there. But Jesus knew the hearts of his hometown friends and family. They served him with their lips, but their hearts were still far from him. 
So Jesus expresses a rebuke to many while speaking to one. And that was to be a rebuke to the religious ones of his friends and family who were still rejecting saving faith as offered through the good old boy Jesus, the hometown hero. The nobleman presses, the text says, upon Jesus again, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said, what? Go, your son lives. John continues to write, the man believed the what? He believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And he started off. The word go here is a powerful word. The crowd around listening to Jesus speak to the nobleman would have heard this like, um, your kids know their chores around the house, right? Um, you've repeated over and over, this is your task and this is how you do your task, right? So when I had the task every Thursday morning of taking out the trash when I was growing up, you have to understand um, our driveway was about 80 yards long, right? And rain, snow, sleet, hail, whatever, it was my job to get the trash out. My siblings had other jobs. But my dad had a very, very particular way that I was supposed to take the trash out, right? I had to make sure that um, every bag was drawn up at the top. I had to spin the bag, right? And he didn't, he didn't get into twist ties. He got into zip ties, right? So I had to do zip ties on the bag, right? I had to put everyone like that in the container, and I had to wheel the container 80 yards out to the end of the driveway. And from time to time, my dad would go inspect my work. It was never good enough to just have a twist tie or have a bag tied at the top. It's all tying. You say, what makes the difference anyway? Well, it made a difference to my dad. So when my dad would say, go, take the trash out, I knew exactly what that meant to the detail. That's what this word go means. Go... Something's happened in this man's heart and now you know how to live. You know what to do. You go and behave as a born-again person is what Jesus is saying. Get your job done. Live as one who has new life in Christ. I've done my job, now by grace you do yours. Be obedient. He's able to do this because he had believed. So I know the theme of the book is Jesus did these signs so that people might believe, but the whole of the book is about believing in Jesus Christ, whether by sign or by word. We already read back up in John chapter 4, verses 39 to 41, that there were those who believed by the mere speaking of the word of God. That's the testimony of the Samaritans. The text tells us here that he believed the same way and he started back to his hometown, a changed man. 
having believed in his heart that Jesus is the Son of God and believing he might have life through his name. But he's anxious to see his healed little boy too. Most likely, folks. We see two thrilling realities before us. We all know which one was more thrilling, don't we? Someone has said the power of Jesus' spoken word heals a man's soul and heals a son in the same moment. And this sign was performed at a moment no one could see it. So in Jesus' hometown, he's performed a sign, a second sign. The first one, again, the wedding that demonstrated Jesus was Lord over all things material and physical. He changed water to wine. He's creator God. He's now performed a sign in the presence of his religious friends and family again that publicly show he's Lord over distance and presence. What will the response of his hometown friends and crowd be? We'll come to see that in a moment, but the story of our nobleman's not over. Apparently, there was only one way to get to Capernaum from Cana of Galilee and vice versa. As soon as the little boy is healed, the men who served the nobleman showed their love for him, and they raced towards him, and he's racing home, a changed man, to see his healed son. They meet up somewhere in between the next day. They tell him his son's been healed. He asks what hour. They tell him yesterday at the seventh hour, his fever left him. The fever left him, and the father knew in the same hour in which Jesus had said to him, your son lives. And John continues, and he himself believed and his what? His household, and that probably included his servants too, who came to tell him the good news. So Jesus' obedience to not only commence out into public ministry ended up in eternal fruit and value, his obedience to go back and to start his Galilean ministry ended up in the same. His obedience had purpose. We find him faithful in both places and throughout his life. Jesus was obedient with purpose, and I would just ask all of us, are we, are you? Is your obedience to the Lord just merely rote obedience? Is it cold, hard duty? Are you following the Lord because it's become faddish for you to do so? Or are you following him for the same reason he followed the will of his father who sent him on a mission? You see, his own friends and family steeped in religion had an obedience, but it was external. They believed by their good religious deeds they can earn favor with God. John continues to allow the story of the religious unbelieving from Jesus' hometown region to unfold all the way through the end of chapter 6. You know the story of what happens there. Jesus says, unless you eat my blood. Now this is to his Galilean friends and family. This is coming to the end of his 16 months of his Galilean ministry. He's fed thousands with just a few morsels of food. They follow him around the Sea of Galilee and we're ending the end again. This this 16 month and this great throng of people, including his friends and family from his region stands before him and they're looking for another sign and yet they don't believe. And Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can, you can have no part 
of me. They heard him say these hard words. They were hard words to hear. But what was the result? Religious unbelief, those who were obeying just for external purposes, withdrew. John 6, 66 says, we're no longer walking with him ever again. You see, unbelieving people want the performance of Christ, not the person of Christ. With one, you can identify with fame and public approval and gain the approval of men. With the other, you enjoy the private and personal grace of Jesus' person. In him, you find rest to your soul and forgiveness, not the rush of mere human excitement, applause, and adoration. Jesus remains faithful with the religious unbelief all the way through the end of his earthly ministry. If you want to write in the cross-reference of your Bible, John chapter 12, verses 36 to 50. As a matter of fact, let's go over there. We've got time before we conclude here. We said that John 6, 66 is the conclusion of his Galilean ministry, which was a primary focus on his own friends and family. They turned away from him following no more, but his desire for the heart of his own countrymen broadly to understand who he was and to declare him by faith, saving faith, as the Son of God continues all the way through this gospel unto the Lord's Supper, which begins in John 13. But if you look at John chapter 12, verses 36 to 50, he says, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Verse 36 continues, these things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For the reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their hearts so they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart to be converted. And I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings, my word, and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings, my word, as one who judges him. The word I spoke 
is what will judge him in the last day. For I did not speak my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So we come to some final conclusions here today as we head back to John chapter 4. And we'll begin broadly and then just kind of sharpen our pencil and finish quite narrowly. Are you a religious believer? And I think it's good for us, since this is a gospel, and it's written so that people might be saved, and since the immediate audience hearing Jesus' word is not just the nobleman, but broadly religious consenters, I would ask you, are you a religious consenter? Are you about the performance of Christianity and the value that that performance brings to your life? Or are you all about the person of Christianity and a relationship with him that's truly inwardly transformative? What attracts you to church? Is it program? Is it having people hear you out? Because you must be heard. Can I ask you this question? Are you over-familiar with Jesus without knowing him? Do you know so much about him that you find exclusive security there? My friends, knowing Jesus is doing the will of him who sent him as he did. The more you say you know him, and the more you would be on his mission. Has your over-familiarity with Jesus led you into a sense of self-entitlement? Like, I'm good. I know what I know. That's good enough. I've got the doctrinal statement of Grace Church of Men Are Down. That's good. I read my Bible and I know a lot. I know a lot. I know what I know. And quite frankly, that should be enough. And I've certainly shown a lot of loyalty to what I know. It's an awfully dangerous place to be if you leave yourself there. Growth in Christ's likeness and pursuit of Christ's mission is the antithesis of self-entitlement and expected comfort in knowing what you know. Growth in Christ's likeness and obedience to his mission is the antithesis of feeding your ego and ministry or just getting what you want because that's the way you want it. Does your obedience have a mission? 
just for obedience sake. My friends, that's religion. That's not Christianity. You say, well, we saying trust and obey for there's no other way. Yes. Why? We're always going to trust. We're always going to obey. And certainly there's no other way. But why? Does your mission to obey embrace the patience and grace of Christ as you know him and as you live him and as you speak of him? For as you know him and grow in him, and live for him and speak of him you're speaking the very words of the father that were given to him to speak of the father do you show grace and patience even still to your religious family and friends you say well pastor tim i am obedient unto mission good I would say Jesus was too. You would agree. And where do we find him in this text? Stepping out to do a second sign, public sign, before the same people. I can remember years ago, a family that was here that was saved for some time, and, and we were growing together joyfully. It was all good. And we were just sitting down over a meal one time, and they just said, I am just so glad we stopped celebrating Christmas with our unsaved family and friends. And it sent me back, and so I just continued to listen, and it wasn't for any particular moral reason that they stopped. They just thought, you know what? They're just not saved, and we are, and so we're just going to do our thing as Christians, and, and we'll pray for them, but we're just going to be separate from them. A few weeks later, I was able to sit down and share with them this text among others and Jesus never let his person or what he knew create space between him and unbelief his obedience was always towards presenting saving faith to unbelief Amen. that was the will of his father those were the commands of his father that he had received he spoke I hope that if you are obeying, it is unto knowing the, the mercy and the grace of Christ. And your obedience isn't causing space unnecessarily away from unbelief. All of us would say that Jesus lived a sinless life, didn't he? And we're called to be holy as he's holy. And the pursuit of unbelief for the gospel's sake, doesn't demand that you compromise your obedience and your holiness, and as Jesus never compromised his. But yet, our pursuit of his person and the will of the Father doesn't create unnecessary space between us and unbelief. And who do we become the most quickly frustrated with in our lives when they won't believe? Our family and our friends and those who know us best. 
I think there's something we can learn from Jesus' pattern here. He's willing to go with them a second time, begin a whole 16-month ministry with them, and then they turned away from him, John 6.66, remember? He didn't turn away from them. Can you see the heart of Jesus for the spread of the gospel in ways familiar that he would someday recite in his post-resurrection appearance? He says in Acts 1.8, you're going to be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and under the uttermost parts of the earth. Do you see how Jesus was concerned for his family and local friends in his own Jerusalem, in his own community, where he performed his first two signs in public in geographic ministry? From that opportunity, Samaritans come to know Christ. From that opportunity, a royal one and his family and household come to know Christ. And from Jesus' determination to obey and do the will of his Father in his own hometown, the Spirit of God breaks the bread of that obedience unto regions beyond him. Isn't that the way it should be with us too? And he is. To God be the glory. Great things he's doing. I want to encourage you by simple application of this text is to, to you believing parents that as you believe unto mission God is pleased to save your children and your household. Lydia, we saw the same thing in Acts 16. The Philippian jailer in the same chapter. Here, they were saved and their household. God loves to save families. And I will encourage you parents that have children still in your home. If you're going to obey for the mere sake of obedience and not obey on mission, then you could inhibit your children from really understanding the person and purpose of Christ. But if you obey for eternal purpose and mission, there's where the Spirit of God loves to bring saving faith. Jesus is gracious for those of you who feel um, fearful of him or scared of him. Um, all of us have been in Christianity long enough where you invite someone to come to Christ and then you invite him to come to church and, and they say these words like, boy, if I came there, you don't want me to come there because the walls, walls would cave in on me if I came, right? I think it's good for us to realize here that Jesus is gracious to a man who's in unbelief, who comes to him in absolute desperation. He certainly exuded that graciousness dying on the cross to the thief, didn't he? It's never too late to come to Jesus. It's never too late to come to Jesus just as you are in your circumstance. And he's gracious to save. He will give you peace to your soul. He can save in a moment, as well as save you after drawing you out over time. Regardless, Jesus saves and Jesus forgives. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this brief narrative. describes to us the sincerity of a heart being drawn 
to salvation in the person of the nobleman. We're thankful, Lord, for the reminder of a gracious heart of the Savior continually expressed without creating space between those he knew the best and the most and for the longest period of time as they remained in their unbelief. Help us to learn from this brief narrative to obey with purpose even though it seems we're never heard Help us to trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to do so with his mission in mind. For right around us, Lord, in each one of our lives, there are those who would be saved. And as we obey, we would love to partake in that eternal harvest as Jesus did. As we close, my friends, there's some of you here today that are still stuck in your religious unbelief. You're, you're more enamored with obedience than the Savior. You're more, more enamored with what you know and you feel you're entitled to be heard because of what you know and you've been long off mission if you were ever on it in the first place. And I do believe there's some religious unbelief that may have been here for decades that needs to just know Jesus. Would you search out your salvation with fear and trembling with us this morning? Then there's another kind of person that's on unbelief and they're in desperate need and experiencing the greatest agony of their lives. Searching out to everybody and there's nobody who can help them. My friends, Jesus can. Jesus will. You can come to him just as you are and ask him to save you. Will you do that this morning? It's never too late to come to Jesus. Someday it will be. Right where you seated, would you just cry out to him? Lord, I am nothing. You're everything. I cannot, no one can forgive me, but you can. I turn from my sin and place my faith in you, Jesus. I hear your word, and I believe. I believe. Save me. Whether you're in religious unbelief or you've just come to Jesus, desperation and believing. We allow his grace to operate us to bring us to him or to serve him. So we certainly want to talk with you and interact with you. Let us know how we can help you grow in him if you've been saved this morning. And let us know how we can help you come to know him if you're stuck in religious obedience. Thank you, Lord, for this hour.
May the Spirit of God help us to continue to know and apply this text. In Jesus' name, amen.